Good morning and welcome you to this part of our service. Warren got hung up on the shoe part. I couldn't get my mind off of the excuses that um, Moses wanted to give God for his um, inability. Just curious, I, I wonder, um, would there be anybody here that would, would, that would be willing to say that they've gone through life thus far and have never been guilty of offering a lame excuse for anything? Okay. My hand, I just, yeah, I I can't put my hand up either, um, as I thought of it. Um, We probably have all been guilty at some point or another, for some thing or another, to offer an excuse for something. That would be my guess. And I did not realize this whenever, tone that down a little, it's echoing, sorry. I did not realize whenever I was preparing this topic that... um, this was going to kind of overlap a little bit or that we were going to continue a bit with it. But I'd like to talk a little bit this morning about excuses. As I mentioned, we probably all are guilty of this at some point. We have some poor behavior, some poor performance, some bad habit, we're forgetful, and we, rather than just admitting it, we, we offer an excuse. It has been said that a poor workman will always find fault with his tools. That's not my fault. It's the tool's fault. If this tool would just work, I could do it. See, I ran across a little story uh, about Daniel Webster, which I thought uh, is a classic um, story of how we tend to give excuses. So the story goes that Daniel's father was off to... uh, town for a few days back in the day, and he left Daniel and his uh, brother Zeke, Ezekiel, home to uh, keep the uh, home fires going, and he gave the two brothers a, uh, some uh, jobs that he wanted them to do as he was gone. So the father goes to his place and then comes back home only to find that Daniel and Ezekiel had not done as they were told, and the jobs that he had given them were not completed. So he asked Ezekiel, he said, what have you been doing? And Zeke goes, nothing, sir. And so he looks at Daniel, he said, and how about you, Daniel? He said, I was just helping out Zeke. It was a poor excuse. You know, an excuse really is an attempt to escape embarrassment or ego damage When the imminent circumstances are suggesting a very inconvenient reality about ourselves. The evidence is pointing its ugly finger right at me, and I'm reaching for an excuse. Here in about a week and a half, at the conclusion of our summer Bible school, we will have our annual ball game. I probably won't participate in that. I haven't the last few years. Um, I use the excuse that I got a bum knee and a bum elbow. And that's true, actually. But let's suppose I decided to join in that ball game here in a week and a half. And I'm up after Clean, and everybody knows Clean can hit home runs like no tomorrow. Okay, so Clean hits a home run, and I'm up next. 
and I hit the ball and I barely make the first. Now I could I have one or two things of two things I can do. I can either say, you know, Clan's a good ball player and I'm not, and that would be the facts. Or I could say, well, I got a bum knee and a bum elbow, and I just didn't connect right, and it's this or that, or I didn't have my cleats on, or I could give them a million excuses. Well, the fact of the matter is, I'm just not a good ball player. I never was. I could have all the equipment, and I'd still mess up, see. Criminal defense lawyers, in my opinion, are just absolute geniuses in making up excuses. Eloquent excuses. This man was mentally incompetent. Or maybe he grew up in a poverty-stricken area of Chicago. Or the one that you hear bandied about every four years during election time. If everybody just get a good education, we wouldn't have half the problems we have. It's a poor excuse, folks. It is. We live in a world that is just rife with people who are willing to find excuses for all manner of sin. And these excuses are either widely accepted, accepted by society, or they are not, and they are dubbed a scandal whenever they are exposed. And it's interesting that it crosses all demographic and social boundaries, young and old, rich and poor, Educated, uneducated, it doesn't seem to matter what, we will find an excuse for our inappropriate behavior. One person put it this way, and I thought this was put well. An excuse is far worse than a lie. For an excuse is a lie that is guarded. You think about that. An excuse is a lie that's really guarded. Turn with me to John 15. We covered this, this uh, passage the last time I was in this spot. But there was, there was one verse here that stood out to me, and this is kind of the basis for this topic this morning. And that is verse 22. Remember we talked about how the world hates Jesus. And why we covered all the reasons why it hated him. And we mentioned this one, and I'd like to just broaden this subject this morning. I'm just going to read this verse. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not, I'm sorry, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. Or we could actually use the word excuse. These people have no excuse for their sin. What Jesus is actually saying is, if I had not come and taught and walked among these people, these people might have been able to come up with an excuse for their misconduct and their sin. But because I'm here, that's totally taken away, and they are laid bare and naked before me without excuse. End of story. Why did Jesus use the word cloak here? Well, I don't know that I know, but I'm going to give you just a few characteristics of cloaks before we move into the meat of this topic. The cloak, of course, was the outermost garment worn by a person, and it was the thing that was immediately seen when you would 
happen upon a person. You'd see his cloak. That, that, was, that was what was on top. And of course, depending on the size and the person, the texture and the size and, and the coat could be many different colors or, or shapes or sizes, I guess. Um, a king would wear a different cloak than a common man. And it would vary between sexes. A person that, if you were a woman or a man, would uh, make a difference on what kind of cloak you wore. And it could perhaps be worn in different ways, worn in different ways. Of course, the outermost garment conceals a lot. If you throw a baggy overcoat over yourself, you can hide an awful lot under that overcoat. And so they could with their cloaks. Things that were underneath could be altered or hid, and um, the cloak was what you saw. Now, is there any application to that? I think there maybe is. Excuses people use to cover up their bad behavior, sinfulness, whatever, are going to be many and various, and they will maybe uh, be different depending on who you are, where you find yourself in life, but they will all serve their defined purpose. And that is to cover. It will cover what it was meant to cover. It will give you, you know, clothing designers use this scheme today. Yet. Um, they will design clothes to either conceal or reveal exactly what they want it to conceal or reveal. And you can do an awful lot with clothes to, uh, to uh, just, just do exactly that. And we can do the exact same thing with excuses. We can reveal or conceal just about anything we jolly well want. So let's uh, explore this a little bit more closely now. I'd like to look at three parts of this. Number one, I'd like to just just um, explore why this cloak wearing is so popular. Why do we why do we offer excuses? And then I would like to look at some common excuses or cloaks that are worn, and Bible characters that actually modeled these cloaks. And then I'd like to wrap it up with looking at what is an antidote for reaching for these cloaks or excuses. All right, so why do we have this propensity to excuse sin? Why is this such a popular thing? Well, I'd like to, I'd like to offer you several things that I think uh, may make it this way. First, I don't have to tell you that we are all born with this innate desire to sin. That's just the way we're made up when we uh, enter this world. The Ecclesiastes writer said this, For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. That is just the way it is. That's who we are. Paul says to the Romans, We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And John says in the book of 1 John, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive not only ourselves, but the truth isn't in us. We are just plain down, have a propensity to be sinful people. All right? Number two, sin will always bring a temporary pleasure. You know, when we think of sin, we generally, our minds go to the consequences that sin brings. And we tend to forget the fact that sin, although it does bring some frightful consequences, it does also bring us temporary pleasure. And because we are, especially this generation, and I think it's always been the case, maybe exasper, exasper, exacerbated in this particular 
time that we live, but we are wired for instant gratification. Uh, think about lottery payouts. You know, so if somebody wins the lottery and you won, you can either take two million or whatever over ten years, or you can have a million today. Which way is the guy going to go? He's going to take the million every time. Which, whatever. It's it, maybe that's a poor illustration, but it seems like it's like we want it now. It doesn't matter if we're giving up half of it. I just want, I, I just want it now. Okay. And when we go to fast food joints, we expect the food and we expect it fast now. Two minutes. I'm out of here. I want it now. I'm not. That's just the way we are. And I think the same thing works with uh, with sin. You know, in our sober moments. We would think, okay, will I give up um, an, an eternal bliss with Jesus and all the glories of heaven for the pleasures of sin for a season? Would I do that? Well, any thinking man would say, well, no, that's not a good trade-off. I'm not going to do that. But in the moment, we will. We will do that. You know, there's, there's a twisted pleasure that can be got out of cheating. Um, you know, one-up somebody. Um, there, there's some pleasure in that. Um, I, I guess as many murders that take place, there must be a, some sort of pleasure in that. Uh, vengeance, getting that revenge that I'm after. Uh, sexual sins of all sorts and kinds are rampant today, and I, I believe it's because of, of the, um, the, the pleasure that goes with that. Um, I've been told, and I think it's probably true, that uh, the human appetite for for a moral sin is uh, is it's such a voracious appetite. It's something akin to a drowning man gasping for air. It's like one of the strongest desires that a human person has. Proverbs nine seven, talking on that subject, says, "Stolen waters are sweet." Well, that's true. It's actually a fact. It is sweet. Because we forget about the fact that them stolen waters are actually going to be poisoned to our belly down the road. But see, it brings a temporary pleasure. So to say that sin has no pleasure at all is really not true. It does bring some pleasure. All right, another point here. There is something in the human heart that... While it enjoys sin, we just talked about that, we know that sin is not commendable and there is that propensity to practice it under the cover of darkness, not do it openly. Jesus said in John 3, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Paul talks about his struggle in Romans 7. He go, and, and finally, after he gives this long exposition on how he wants to do the right thing and he doesn't do the right thing and, and this, this torn between two thing, he just goes, oh, wretched, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me? Well, we all know that God has given the way out. Jesus came, shed his blood as a sacrifice for our salvation. And if we are tired enough of sin, we can find the victory. Nobody said this would be easy, but I believe the victory can be had. I'm just going to read to you Colossians 1.20, a few verses there. Having made peace through the 
through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be on earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. There you have it in a nutshell. It is possible to live above these things. And yet, with all these, um, all this power and all this, this knowledge of the blood that has been shed for our sins, we will stoop to cloak wearing. We want the appearance of good, and yet we want to indulge in some sin. And so we are willing to make excuses. Conquering these sins perhaps look just a little too daunting or too hard of work. And so we attempt to have our cake and eat it both. All right, let's look at a few examples now of people that, um, or I should say some, some examples of common cloaks that we wear. And I want to say here too this morning that I am in no way insinuating that, I, that we have a church full of cloak wearers here. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that as I studied this, I could identify with some of this. And I, I think I'm probably similar enough to all of you that maybe you can identify with some of these too. So I'm just going to allow the Spirit to speak to you. I am in no way pointing fingers or suggesting that we have... Uh, a ton of problems here with these things, but it is something that's common to man. All right, how about this one? How about the cloak of blame shifting? Right out of the gate, a few verses into the Bible, we come across this one, Adam and Eve, shifting blame. They both ate that, I'll call it an apple, that fruit, whatever it was, and suddenly their eyes are opened they're hiding in the bushes. God's walking through the garden. Adam, where are you, Adam? I'm over here. Why are you there, Adam? I'm naked. How do you know that? Ate the fruit. But it was the woman's fault, by the way. I have you to know. If you'd have never made that woman, I wouldn't have ate that fruit. Eve, what about you? It was the serpent. Serpent. That's who it was. Shifting the blame. What was the problem? Adam and Eve ate the fruit. That was the problem. We talked about Aaron a little bit. Mark did in the Sunday school lesson. So Aaron's making the calf. Moses comes down and says, What's up with the calf, Aaron? It was the people. They just gave me their earrings. I threw them into the fire and out came a calf. Blame shifting. What was the problem? Aaron had no guts. He didn't do what he should do. He just said, ah, it's the people. Saul did the very same thing. The prophet comes around and says, what's this I hear? What do I hear out there? Bawling and bleeding. Oh, it was the people. The people. James 1.13 says this. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot tempt with evil, neither tempteth he any man, 
But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. It is true, though, I want to hasten to add, that circumstances can influence um, some of our poor decisions sometimes, and that is why the proverb writer in particular warns us over and over, be careful of your company. Be very careful. Because who you hang out with, will you, you eventually act like them. So don't hang out with the sinners, because you just may sin. Paul says to Ephesians, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. So there is a point to that. But remember, it is the soul that sins that dies. Okay, let's look at another cloak. How about the cloak of impulse? In the moment, it was just in the moment. I had to think of Cain when I thought of this one. We don't know a lot about um, all the, the events that surrounded Cain and Abel there and, and the sacrifice and the murder that took place. But if you read that closely and, and do that sometime and see what you think, but it, almost, it would almost appear that um, while there was some welling up of ill will and resentment toward Abel there in the heart of Cain, it says one day they were out in the field and they talked. And, and Cain just rose up and slew Abel. Seems like that might have been a bit impulsive. I also thought of Achan. I don't know about you, but I have a feeling that when Achan got up that day and he joined that army that went into Jericho to defeat that, um, defeat, defeat that city, he had no intention of taking that wedge of gold and that goodly Babylonish garment. And uh, what was the other thing he took? Maybe that was it. But whatever, those, those little treasures he took there. But I think that when he was um, in the hullabaloo of the moment, he saw that gold and that garment and he said, you know what, I'd like to have that. And it was kind of an impulsive thing. He grabbed it, he put it under his cloak probably. I don't know how he got it out of the city. But he took it home and he buried it in his, in his tent. You know the story. I just don't think that was premeditated. I think he did that in the impulse of the moment. But you know what? God took neither one of these things very lightly at all. Um, I, have, I, can, I can hardly help but wince when I read the story of Achan. Why was it the two-year-old son of Achan's fault that his father took that wedge of gold? Did he have anything in it? Why was it the camel and the cow? Why did they all have to be stoned? Do a mental picture what that must have looked like. Not a pretty sight. But what God was trying to teach his people there was it doesn't matter. That was sin. I said you don't do that, and you did. That is sin. And so it was judged. Let's look at another cloak. How about the cloak of just a tiny little bit? I had to think of Samson when I thought of this cloak. Samson was a man that thought he could play around just a little and get away with it. And he did for a bit. For a while, it looked like he would get away with that. It seemed like he could do one thing after the next. He could hang out with those Philistine women. And um, 
I don't know, their nightclubs, whatever all it was there he got into. But he sure toyed with sin. And he toyed with that and he'd mess with it. And it seemed like he would get away with it. But after a while, it got him. It got him hard. This cloak of just a little is very popular. Just take a little bite. But after a while, we're taking more bites, and the bites are getting bigger. It doesn't seem so bad. James says, be careful, because when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So we try it. We try to take a little look at a picture, or we entertain a little thought, or we take a little sip, or we spend a little time at the wrong place, just a little bit, just a little, hold a little grudge, just a little suspicion, just a little bad attitude, just a little bit, just a little. If we're not careful, we'll find that it is the little foxes that spoil the vine. All right, let's look at uh, another cloak, the cloak of circumstances. And again, we're going to go back to our character Moses here for this cloak. We all remember that sad story, why um, Moses could not enter the promised land. We know that. Smiting the rock against better instruction. Toward the end of Moses' life, Here's what he says. He's in, in the book of Deuteronomy, he's talking to the Israelites, and here's what he says. He says, I besought the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, thou hast begun to show thy servant thy greatness and thy mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or in earth that can do according to thy works and according to thy might? I pray thee, let me go over and see that good land that is beyond the Jordan, that goodly mountain in Lebanon. What does God say? Here's what Moses says. But the Lord was wroth with me. Now listen. The Lord was wroth with me. Why? Because I hit that rock? Here's what Moses said. Because of you. For your sakes. The Lord was mad at me because of you. And would not hear me. And the Lord said unto me, Let it suffice thee. Speak no more to me of this matter. Now, let's go to the book of Numbers and let's hear what God's side of this thing is. When they're talking about this, this is God and Moses talking to each other here in Numbers 27. And here's why God told Moses he was not going into the promised land. He says, For ye rebelled against my commandment in the desert of Zin, in the strife of that congregation, to sanctify me at the water before their eyes. That is the water of Meribah and Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. So you see, we have two different perspectives. Who could blame Moses? You know, the people were screaming, we're tired, we're hot, we're thirsty. We, our cattle, our children, we all need water. Do you think Moses wasn't hot, tired, thirsty, and all the other things too? I have a feeling he had it up above his eyeballs at that point. That's where I think Moses was. He didn't mean to disobey God. It was the circumstances, right? Can anybody identify with this? I mean... I get a little irritable, too, when things aren't, you know, just put yourself. I mean, I have eight children. You imagine a million? I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, It's very understandable. And Moses was actually telling God, or telling the children of Israel, um, it was because of you. And God said, no, it's you. It's actually you. I had a guy tell me... uh, 
few years ago whenever he was telling me all his woes of life, and he had a few woes. At the end, the epitaph was, now you understand why I drink. See, it's my circumstances. That's why I drink. i got to get away. It's not my fault. It's my circumstances, see. Or, perhaps make it a little closer home. If you knew the parents I had to live with, or you knew my children, or you knew understood my boss, he understands a few things. Well, no doubt circumstances can be trying, but it seems that God does not look at that cloak kindly. 1 John 5.17 says, All unrighteousness is sin. All of it. Sin is not a joke or a medication. Let's look at another one. How about the cloak of covetousness? This one comes right out of 1 Thessalonians 2.5. The person I thought about that modeled the cloak of covetousness was um, our good friend Balaam. Balaam is not held up in very good light in scriptures at all. I don't know that there's ever been a good thing said about Balaam. Peter comments on him um, in 2 Peter 2. He's talking about false prophets that will come among the people. And here's what he says about Balaam. He says, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And Jude says something very similar about him. There was something about that money that was offered to Balaam. He just couldn't pass it up. It was the cloak of covetousness. We have similar admonition in 1 Timothy 6 about those that will be rich falling into temptation and a snare, hurtful lusts, drowning men, and then it says, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, have erred from the faith, have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You know, we are admonished over and over and over in Scripture about subjects of honesty, integrity, generosity, and the absolute folly of storing up wealth here on this earth. And yet, almost every Christian is willing to put that cloak on. Almost every one of us is willing in some way or the other to wear that cloak at some point. It has got to be one of the most popular cloaks known to man. It is estimated that the U.S. Treasury is built out of something like $250 billion a year through people avoiding taxes. And you should listen to some of the excuses people will give for not paying taxes. It's unbelievable. Some people are willing to run up bills and let someone hang with them. And on and on we could go. It's amazing what we will justify under the cloak of covetousness. Let's be honest with ourselves. Let's analyze ourselves. Let's put ourselves under the, cloak, or under the spotlight of God. Is there any of us that are, that are guilty of wearing the cloak of covetousness? How about another one? The cloak of sin measurement. I had to think of the Pharisee and the publican. We talked about him a few weeks ago. The Pharisee was pretty sure that his sins were not as bad as the publican's. He was pretty sure of that. In fact, he was so sure of it that he actually told God that. 
He said, you understand that, God. You know that this man over here is just a whole lot worse than me. I'll tell you about it. So he commenced to tell God about it. It says there that the Pharisee played, prayed thus with himself. But you know, folks, it's always possible to find somebody that has committed a sin more grievous than mine. It always is. I don't know. I don't know if the worst person on Skid Row has somebody like that or not, but I have a feeling he probably does. There's somebody worse than me. You know, the standard of measurement must always be God's holiness. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. God's holiness. We must be like Isaiah, who, 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 who is willing to fall on his face and say, Whoa, woe is me. I'm undone. I, what can I say, God? I'm not even looking around. I know I'm undone. How about the cloak of everyone else is doing it? Did you ever hear that one? I can sin. I can, I can do this because everyone else is. This is basically the history of the children of Israel. Over and over and over again. Um, I don't know how this all took place, but at some point they would forsake God and somebody set up a little idol in his backyard in some high place. And I guess the neighbor would look over and say, well, it looks like that's working for him, so maybe I'll do it. And pretty soon the whole neighborhood and then the whole country is just filled with this idol worship. I don't know how that all, that all happened. But I have a feeling that this thing of everybody else is doing it probably played a role in that. It's unfortunate that when sin becomes common enough and is practiced long enough, at some point it's considered completely okay. And, we're, and we are seeing a, an awful reaping in our country that we live in today because of that very fact. Everyone else is doing it, and so it's okay. Luke, Jesus in the book of Luke, has a few things to say. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. Okay? Take heed. Be careful about that. To the Pharisees, he said this, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men. But God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Can we remember that, folks? How about the cloak of position permits me to do some things that others can't? Do you think that perhaps David suffered from wearing this cloak? We maybe have to read a little bit into it, but there's something tells me. Think about David. He's king. He's brought, been brought out of the sheep coat, it says, Set up as king. He has everything he wants. And that includes hundreds of wives, children, all these things. And yet he wants the neighbor's wife. I wonder at the fact that David was who he was. Didn't go to his head just a little bit. And he thought, you know, because I'm David and I can pretty much have my way and everything's going my way, I can, I can do this too. Is that possible? I'm not sure, but I wonder if that didn't play a role in it. It does. I will say this. It is very, very common for people in position uh, in our culture, I will say, to commit some of the most egregious sins um, that mankind can commit. And I think it's because of their, uh, of their position, perhaps. Well... There would be other cloaks we could add to this. Let's, um, 
let's leave that. And let's look now for just a few minutes at what is the antidote, or what can we do here to uh, offset this temptation we have to grab for these excuses and these cloaks and wear them and, and act like all is normal. Is there anything we can do? Well, I just am going to suggest a few things here that may be helpful. I think that we must be honest with the reality that sin does indeed have a very negative effect, effect on us, no matter what the excuse. We talked about earlier how sin is actually can be sort of fun, you know? There's some pleasure there. But now let's go to the sober moment. Let's think about the fact that sin does indeed uh, bring a reality that is not fun at all. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 3, he says, um, I want you to exhort each other daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened, hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Hardened. You know, we start out, we make excuses. Why do we make excuses? It's because we're guilty. We're feeling bad about the way this is going, and so we offer an excuse. But the unfortunate reality is, after a while, we, we cease to offer the excuse. And why is it? It is because we are sufficiently hardened. Sin has got us to the point that we're set up. The concrete is set. We don't offer the excuse anymore. And we're guilty, and we feel good about it. We don't want to go there. We do not want to go there. David says in Psalm 66, this is another thing we need to keep in mind. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Folks, sin will put a block between us and God. God won't hear us. It's not going to happen. So if we're having trouble hearing God, and uh, maybe we're becoming like that Pharisee that's praying thus with himself, could it be that I'm satisfied with offering a facade, a cloak for some sin? might be worthwhile looking at that. There's an interesting verse in Isaiah 3. It goes like this. The show of their countenance witnesses against them. You know, uh, there's a physical, a very physical side to practicing sin. Um, I'm sure you've noticed as much as I have that people that are living in, in sin... You can see it. It's right there. It's right there on their countenance. There's no hiding it. There's a lack of joy and peace that comes from a life that is lived above sin. And so we, we, we have this problem of uh, actually it can be physical even. Proverbs 28, the proverb writer says this. He says, he that covereth his sin shall not prosper. There's just going to be no prospering. There's going to be no spiritual blooming if we're constantly offering excuses for whatever pet sin we have. No spiritual progress. And probably the last one I have here, and probably one of the saddest, and that's when Nathan confronts David about his sin. One of the things that he gives David as a reason that this was such a sad occasion in David's life, he says, This deed, by this deed, thou hast given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Think about that. 
When the children of God are willing to offer excuses for their unwillingness or inability or whatever to live above sin, and they practice that, and the ungodly look on, it gives them a reason to blaspheme. Who is their God? Who is he after all? Okay, another antidote. Let's be willing to, on, willing to be honest about who God is. Let's be willing to, admi- to acknowledge that he is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. And while we can kid ourselves, and we can perhaps kid some other people, we can't kid God. Hebrews 4 says this, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And lastly, if we find ourselves consistently reaching for these cloaks, perhaps it's time that we humble ourselves and shuck our cloaks and by God's help pursue a life of victory. Now that sounds trite and easy, right? But you know, it is possible. It is possible. I'm convinced it is. When we resort to excuses, basically what we're saying is, you know, I believe God is big and powerful, but he's not quite big enough for this. He's not quite big enough. Jesus tells his audience here in, the, in our text that, uh, you know, there might have been, these, these people may have had an, an, an excuse for their sin at one time, but they no longer do. And the reason they do not is because I'm here. That still rings down through history. That's still the reason today that we cannot legitimately offer an excuse. It's because Jesus came. 2 Corinthians 6.17 says this, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. A couple points here. Let's suppose that you did like Daniel Webster's father, and you went away and you left your children home with some instructions and tools, and you said, here's the things I want you to do, do it. And you came home and they didn't do it. And uh, maybe you did it again, and they maybe half did it the next time or failed to use some tools that uh, you had left there for them. How many excuses would you be willing to accept after a while? It's like, children, here's the tools, here's the job, let's get the job done. Do you think that God ever feels like that with us at all? Do you think that's possible? I gave you the tools, I gave you the stuff it took, I didn't give you any job that was bigger than what you can do, and yet all I get is excuses. I'm helping Zeke, you know? Turn with me to Matthew 22. It's a closing verse. This is kind of a sad story here, but I think it teaches us a a valuable lesson. And I'm not going to read this entire passage here, but it's about this wedding, this marriage um, that this king put on. And he went out to bring in people, and nobody would come, you know that. And so he went out into the highways and byways there in verse 9. And he gathered up these people that, to come to this wedding, a feast. And now in verse 11 it says, And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, 
How comest thou in without a wedding garment? And what did the, what did the man say? He was speechless. Absolutely speechless. Now it hit me as I was reading over that. Could it be that this man that showed up at that wedding feast without a garment was the man that was used to going through life wearing that cloak, offering excuses? Here's the reason that I do not do what I know I should do. It's A, B, C, or D, whatever it is. But the day finally came that when he was in the wedding feast, and I don't know what he thought his excuse might be, but when the, when the king came and said, why do you not have on a wedding garment? He couldn't say there wasn't one offered to me. He couldn't say I didn't know where it was. Obviously, the man was without excuse. He was speechless. What a sad, sad deal. Verse 13 says, The king said to his servants, Bind him up and cast him into outer darkness. That's not, uh, that's not a very happy ending here for this man. There can be a much better ending. <clears throat> that man could have ceased to offer excuses. He could have taken a wedding garment. And he could have enjoyed those, that feast like everybody else did. D.L. Moody said this once. He said, It is easy enough to excuse yourself to hell, but you cannot excuse yourself into heaven. It's impossible. This man found that out. Well, friends, I don't know about you, but I will say that I was thoroughly convicted with some of my lame excuses as I studied this. I don't know where you are with God this morning. But I encourage you, introspect your life. Are you guilty of making excuses that absolutely don't hold water? Let's make sure that we shut those cloaks um, now. There's no reason to continue to wear them. And someday we can enjoy this wedding feast in the proper garment with the king.